Well, good morning once again. As I uh, said from the beginning, we are uh, trudging through the Gospel of John. Uh, and so uh, we find ourselves in chapter 16 this week. So if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. This morning I'll be reading from uh, the ESV. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along with, we have a Bibles there on that uh, table. And uh, so you can follow along in those Bibles. But in kind of our normal mode here is that we will, we will pray uh, first, then we will read the entirety of the passage that is under consideration this morning, and then we'll divide the text, making some observations and applications um, as we go. So first, let us pray. Father in heaven, your kingdom people are gathered here in Jesus Christ this morning. We desire that your will be accomplished here in us as it is in heaven. We come this morning to your holy word, asking for help from the Holy Spirit to open our minds that we might understand, inflame our hearts in love for you and for your people. We ask, Lord, that you would move our will toward obedience. We pray for the church that gathers this morning in Old Town. We, we ask that the gospel be proclaimed with clarity and with conviction that you might bring those who gather there and here to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So as you are able, would you stand for the reading of the authoritative, inspired word of God from John's Gospel, chapter 16? We will read through verse 11 this morning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is God's word. You may be seated. So I want to pose a question to us this morning is, what, to, what do you consider to be the greatest threat to God's people today? Do you think that the greatest threats to God's people today is that they're not culturally relevant? Do you think that the greatest threat to God's people today is an illness that might hinder the church from her God-given mission? Is it persecution from our government? 
Is it that the world is contrary to us? Is that the great threat to the church? Well, oppose this, that the great threat to the church today is apostasy. It is a people ignorant of the truth of Scripture. It is a church that cannot proclaim the gospel because she herself does not understand it. We'll see from our study today that Jesus going away brings the Holy Spirit to keep the church from falling away. The Holy Spirit is the witness that prosecutes the unrepentant world and the witness that testifies and reveals a complete and true witness of Jesus Christ to the church. I will argue this morning that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus ushers in the complete revelation of Jesus Christ through the witness of the Holy Spirit. Let us now dive into our text and look at the first uh, four verses more closely. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, to be put out of the synagogue for a Jewish person was to be separated from spiritual life. Means that if you were kicked out of the synagogue as a Jewish person, you were excluded from worship. There was no sacrifice for sin. The scriptures were held by the leaders of the synagogue, so to be put out of the synagogue meant that no one had access even to the scriptures. The synagogue in the Jewish context was more, though, than just a center of spiritual life. But it was the center of family life. It was the center of economic life. If you were removed from the synagogue and your family members weren't, that meant that you were an outsider even to your own family. If you were removed from the synagogue and your family wasn't, think about that. My family gets to go and worship and sacrifice and hear from the Word of God, but because, they, because I proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior, I cannot come. I'm not part of my own family. Economic was life, life was tied to membership in the synagogue as well. See, to be removed from the synagogue would cause you to lose your job. If you were a craftsman working your own business, no Jew in good standing would come to your workplace. They would not come and buy from you because you were an outsider, kicked out of the family of God, as it were. Notice that persecution comes from this, not from the secular community here. Jesus says persecution is going to come from the religious community, from who was supposed to be the people of God, right? The religious community will decide this, that if you claim Jesus as the Messiah, this is what they're saying when they kick them out, you are not true Israel. You are not a good Jew. If you proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah who was come, the son of David, you are are not true Israel. 
And therefore, if you're killed, we would be doing great service to God to destroy you. The leaders of the synagogue determine who true Israel is, you see. And they say who true Israel is in the Jewish community. And those who proclaim Jesus, they are not it. But you remember Jesus' message in chapter 15. Remember that he said, he is the true vine. He is the true Israel. See, he's reminding them, think about this. That, that you need to abide and hold on to and be held by me. I am the true Israel, and all who are true Israel are those who are incorporated into me by faith. Now know this, you proclaim this to be true, and they'll kick you out of the synagogue. They may even kill you, thinking they're doing a service to God. But hang on to me. Hold on to faith in Jesus. Well, you see, this is the message that the disciples then were to carry on, right? They were to carry this message forward. And, and think about this, the cost was high. To be removed from Jewish life as they knew it, possibly death. And here's the other thing. If they were killed, there was no possibility even for an honorable death, an honorable burial. You cannot be buried with your family members. You wouldn't be given honor because you were kicked out of the family of God. This was a high cost for them. But for these Jewish disciples, you see, membership in the synagogue was meaningful. Membership meant something. I would ask us this, how do we find meaningful membership in today's church when if you don't like the music... You can go to the hip church that's just down the street that plays the kind of music you like. How can we make church membership meaningful when if you disagree with the direction from church A, then you can go to tribe B, C, all the way down to Z until you find one that suits you. So how does a church regain meaningful membership in these conditions. See, in the seeker-friendly church, the front door to membership is wide open, isn't it? It's wide open. If, if you're new to this church thing, I'm just speaking as if I were them. If, if this church thing is new to you, it's all good, bro. Just come on in, experience all that we do, Communion, no matter, no matter what it is that we do, you, you participate in it because, you know, we're going to accept you into Christian fellowship. This also means that the door is wide open in the back. Easy come, easy go. We'll ask nothing of you. We'll ask no commitment from you. We'll, we'll ask that you, that you contribute nothing to the people who gather here. And you can go if you want. But come in, it's all good. We'll give you all that we have. All people are welcome, of course, to attend any church at any time. We want the church to be wide open for anybody in the community to come in and hear the word of God. But membership to the church in order for it to be meaningful for all the members of the church, the number one thing is that a member 
of a church should be what? A Christian. The member of a church should be a Christian. And see, none of us, we cannot, we cannot perfectly discern who is and who isn't a Christian. But for membership to be meaningful in a church, every church member should have some credible confession of faith in Jesus. Some working knowledge of the Jesus of the gospel, of the Jesus that is according to the scriptures. You might remember from the book of Acts that those who believed were added to the church. They didn't just go out and proclaim the message, right? And say, here's the message. Now, come on in. You're part of the family. Let's get to it. No, those who were accepted into the family of God were those who believed. Number two, in order for church membership to be meaningful, members must regularly gather with the church. Church membership helps us as overseers know just who and how to care. If you're never gathered with believers, the leadership one doesn't know if you belong and doesn't know how to care for you. And then your brother and sisters, as we talked about last week, who are to love you, How do they love you if they don't know you? If they don't experience who you are and they don't walk with you in the troubles and the trials and the struggles. If they never have opportunity to hear you confess to them your sin and the way that you are struggling and all of those things, right? In order for church membership to become meaningful, believers must attend church regularly. They must gather. Number three, meaningful membership happens when members view a local body of believers as the primary context in which they fellowship and do the work of the ministry. See, the New Testament envisions that when we talk about there's a myriad of one another's, at least over a hundred, I think, one another's in the New Testament. But the New Testament envisions that these one another's would, would be fulfilled primarily among a concrete group of people to which they are accountable. Why do you think all of the letters are written to specific churches at specific times in specific places? The, the normative way is that this church gathers, they do ministry here, this is, this is where they fellowship, this is who they are connected to, this is a particular concrete body to which they are accountable to one another. Fourth and finally, the members of a local church have certain privileges, and certain responsibilities. Members of a local church, to have meaningful membership, they have the privilege of coming together at the Lord's table, of being united in Christ and his death and resurrection and remembering those things. And members have a responsibility, don't they? They have a responsibility to pray for the church. They have a responsibility to pray for its members and its mission. Members are responsible to be transparent And in transparent relationships with one another, with other church members in which they care for, they encourage, they rebuke, they teach, and they learn from. You can refer to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 uh, on your own if you'd like. And membership that has meaning also means that, that members submit to the church's leadership and to its teaching. You can refer to Hebrews 13, 17 for that. Members are responsible to promote unity within a local body. Members are to support the local church's ministry financially and with their time, their talents, 
and their energies. The member of a local church uses their spiritual gifts for the sake of others within that particular local body, a concrete body. Remember in Matthew 16, Jesus says that confessing believers have been given the keys to the kingdom. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. See, the church member opens the front door to fellowship in the kingdom only for those who confess Christ in a credible way. The church member keeps guard of the back door. The church member in a meaningful church keeps guard of the back door and is careful only to open it if it's safe for the person to leave. If they have repented of their sin, if they have confessed all that, that if they've confessed their sin and they're, and they're, and they're leaving by, by divine providence, they're going somewhere, God has moved them out. Or if it's expedient for the local body that they go. <laughs> Sometimes it's expedient that people leave, right? But, but meaningful church membership guards against that sort of thing. Meaningful membership guards us against falling away, doesn't it? Of becoming apostate. It is a people who guard the truth of the scripture. A meaningful membership is a church that can rightly proclaim the gospel. You know why? Because she herself understands it. And she herself protects it. That's what we do as a church body together. But I have said these things, Jesus says in verse 4, to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that when the hour of persecution comes, you might be strengthened in faith through them. You're going to be kicked out of everything you knew. You proclaim me, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, the coming one, the, the son of David, the king. You proclaim me in the synagogue and to your people, guess what? They're kicking you out. And when they do, I want you to be strengthened in the faith through them. I've said these things to you. When their hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. You may remember that I am the true vine, that I am the one who has incorporated you. And now you are the people of God by faith in me. Jesus, I'm telling you these things that you might be strengthened through faith. The persecutions come that the disciple of Jesus Christ might recognize his or her weakness and might humbly remain in the true vine, might fully entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter encourages believers to rejoice in trials, although the grief uh, of them is real. Genuine faith is tested. Believers are spurred on to growth in personal holiness. And God is using these things to make one fit for the kingdom. In 1 Peter 1, 6-8, it says, In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Augustine wrote this, that the grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. I always have loved that quote. The grace of God does not find men fit for salvation, but makes them so. I want to share a story with you, an application 
uh, an illustration that Billy Graham sometimes used to describe this principle. So a friend of his, he went through the depression, he lost a fortune, he lost his wife, and he lost his home. But as a believer in Christ, he held tenaciously to his faith, even though he was depressed and downcast by his circumstances. Well, one day, in the midst of his agony, he stopped to watch some men doing some stonework for a large uh, church in the city. And he asked them, he says, so what are you going to do with that? He asked of a man who was busy, like, chiseling a triangular stone. So the workman stopped, and he pointed to a small opening, and he said, you see that little opening up there near the top? Well, I'm shaping it down here so that I can fit it up there. Tears filled the man's eyes as he walked away from the workman, for it seemed that God had spoken to him personally, telling his heart that his troubles through his earthly ordeal was making him fit for heaven. Brothers and sisters, you can trust that in trials and persecutions in this life, that they are in the sovereign will of God, and that they are intentionally, purposefully, conforming you into the image of his Son and that you are being made fit for heaven. So when the trials come, you know, you say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. God is making me fit for heaven. I don't get this. It still stinks, right? It's still very hard. I really don't want to go through this trial. I really wish I didn't have to. But I rejoice because this trial, God is using intentionally to make me fit for the kingdom of heaven. Thanks be to God. Verse 5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness And judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the the ruler of this world is judged. So in chapter 15, Jesus has been teaching the disciples what they are to do when he goes away. He gives them instruction about the work that they are to do. Amid persecution from the religious community, you are to hold on to me. Remain faithful. Incorporate your life into what I have taught you. Entrust your eternal position to me. Secondly, he tells them that you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ as I have loved you. Now Jesus says, do your work. Because I go, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And here's the work that he will do, that he will do because I am going. So there's a distinction. Chapter 15, here's the work that you are to do. And it's really simple, isn't it? Hang on to Jesus Christ by faith and love your brothers and sisters as he did in a sacrificial way, right? That sums up your part. And then he says, well, the Holy Spirit, here's what he's going to do when I go, because I am going. So let us look at at verse 8 through 11 again, just a little more closely. I want to hone in on this. And when he comes, this is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So one work of the Holy Spirit is this, to convict the world. We don't convict the world. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world in two senses, doesn't it? One, the Holy Spirit comes and he secures a guilty verdict. What the Spirit says, you are guilty. He secures a guilty verdict. And then he brings people to seek alleviation from that guilt. Without the Spirit's previous supernatural activity, the human will is always deflected away from obedience to God and toward their own destruction. So when the Spirit comes, He secures a guilty verdict. And when He secures a guilty verdict, what, what do the believer, what, what happens in the believer's life? The one who's been born again, the one whom the Spirit has convicted of sin, who has said you are guilty, Help me. That's what the believer says. Help me. I am undone. Woe is me. I need help. The Spirit's work is to convict the world of sin. But notice the sin that the Spirit is concerned with. Verse 9. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. You may have heard me tell this story of, of Rosaria Butterfield before, or maybe you have even uh, read a book that she has written. But she was a tenured professor at Syracuse, and she was the head of women's study, and, uh, and she was a feminist, lesbian, advocate for the LGBTQ community. Um, and uh, she was doing some research and she wanted to understand the scriptures in their original languages because she wanted to make a case, really. She wanted to make a case against what she saw was the bigotry of a misogynistic biblical uh, worldview. But she wanted to know, right? She, she was seeking information. She uh, made friends. A pastor and her became friends and she learned from him the truth of the gospel and, and to make a, a long story short, she was converted to Christ. But when she was asked how God had saved her out of lesbianism, you know what her answer was? She said, God did not save me out of that. He saved me from the sin of unbelief. He saved me from the sin of unbelief. If you're here today and say you are a philanderer. Just going to name something bad, right? So let's just say you're a philanderer. You're a womanizing person. As egregious as that is, as that sin is, the verdict against you for that is guilty. But the charge, the charge that the Spirit would bring against you is not fornication. That The charge that He would bring against you is not adultery. The verdict against you that deserves the wrath of God and eternal punishment is that you are guilty of unbelief. You are guilty because you do not believe God and in His Christ. Well, you might be that person and say, 
Oh, I believe in a transcendent God. You may well believe that. But eternal judgment awaits you because you have refused to believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who was born like one of us, yet without sin, who in perfect obedience died to reconcile sinners like you and like me to holy God. That's what you're guilty of. And you can fill in the blank with any sort of sin. I just used that one. But fill in the blank with any sort of sin that you're mired in. Your problem is primarily unbelief. That is your problem. I was thinking about another sin that seems really egregious to us as believers, right? Is someone who would sacrifice the life of an unborn child on the altar of convenience. Seems like an egregious sin, and it is. But the verdict for that person is you're guilty of unbelief. Do you not believe that God would provide for you and for that child? Do you not believe that Jesus Christ is enough? Do you not believe that God sent his son for you? And that surely he will protect this little one? See, the sin there is a sin of unbelief. So if you're sitting here today and the spirit is confronting you concerning your sin of unbelief, places where you know you believe, but you don't. You know what I'm saying? There are places in all of us, I think, where if we are honest and we reflect and we go, we could be like those in the gospel who say, I believe, help me with my unbelief. If this morning the Spirit is confronting you concerning the sin of unbelief, the Spirit is offering you today salvation. Repent, turn from your sin and believe. For those of you who have never believed, I plead with you this morning, don't die in your sin. I'm pleading with you, do not die. Whatever you do when you leave here today, do not die. I'm warned, I don't want you to die. Do not die today. Because you need to respond now. While you have breath. Believe the good news and you shall be saved from the wrath to come. Well, not only does the Spirit work to convict the world concerning the sin of unbelief, but the Spirit's work convicts the world by confronting us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ Himself. The Spirit bears witness to the word, to the world that, that God, in fact, did send His Son into the world. God's Son perfectly, steadfastly did the will of the Father. See, as we look at it, He says in, in verse 9, He says that He will convict the world concerning sin, or a sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. Righteousness because I go to the Father. I lived as one of you. And yet I'm going to die. But yet I'm going to be raised again. And I'm going to be joined with my Father 
in heaven. I am the righteous one. And the Spirit convicts us, not just of sin, but that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. You might recall that in John chapter 4, the disciples, they come back and they've been procuring food and they come to find Jesus, uh, you know, ministering to this uh, Samaritan woman. And the disciples think, well, surely he must be hungry. So they say, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food to eat? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Does your righteousness exceed that? See, Jesus is the righteous one. Does your righteousness exceed that if somebody said to you, where do you find nourishment? I find nourishment in obeying God. In according my will with His. Jesus, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. My food, the thing that sustains me, is doing the will and the work of the Father. I'm sustained by doing what pleases the Father. See, His righteousness is humanly unrepeatable by anybody in the world in their flesh. His righteousness is humanly unrepeatable. And the Spirit confronts the sinner's unbelief and confronts the sinner with the perfect standard required of sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, isn't this the perfect standard? My food is to do the will of Him who sent me. My nourishment, my strength comes from doing what pleases the Father. And He did so perfectly and always. When confronted with the righteousness of Christ, what does the worldly person say? I need to try harder. I need to try harder. If I just do this and I do this and I do this, I will please the Father. But when the Spirit convicts the believer of sin, they don't say, I need to try harder. They say something like this. Depart from me. I am a sinful man, a sinful woman, a sinful boy, a sinful girl, whatever it might be. The convicted cry out, help me, God. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I ask you all here this morning, will you cry out to God? Will you confess that you desire the righteousness of Christ to be accounted unto you? Will you trust in the sufficiency of Christ's death for your sin? Will you confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, giving you new life? If you responded yes to these questions by God's grace and by the Spirit's conviction, good news, you're being made fit for heaven. But how might this understanding help us think about how we do evangelism. When we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, when we use our words empowered by the Holy Spirit, do we proclaim the righteousness of Christ, His complete righteousness? Shouldn't the sin that we address in a person's life 
be only one? The sin of unbelief? Should we not allow God to work on those other things? Because the Spirit's work is to convict them of sin and the sin of unbelief and of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. See, it's, it's about Jesus for sinners that they might believe. Well, the believer's work is to abide in Christ, to follow his sacrificial example of love towards the believer. The Spirit's work is to bear witness to the sin of unbelief in the unbeliever. The Spirit bears witness to the unrepeatable righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Spirit bears witness that because Jesus will overcome sin through righteous obedience to the Father, obedience even unto death on a cross, that the enemy of God's people in this world has already been judged. That he has been judged. He has been judged. 